Nicole Eunice is back with us uh, today. Nicole is an adjunct teaching member here at Ward Church, but she coaches leaders around the country. And she's got a brand new book just released a couple weeks ago called The Miracle Moment. And we're going to be diving into her book uh, together as a congregation later this year. Uh, but right now, I'd like you to welcome back uh, home Nicole Eunice. Thank you, friends. Good morning. Uh, you know, when I come here and um, think about just like, why does God bring me here? You know, I live in Richmond, and I often feel like I just, the answer to that question for me is that God always just has a word that he wants me to bring you. And I just want you to know that this morning during worship, as I was praying for you guys, um, I, just, I just wanted to share a word that a worship leader that's a good friend of mine once said, which is that sometimes we sing our way into believing. And if you're feeling like, what is this all about really? And just feel distant or disconnected. I want you to know that God is not surprised. He's not confused and he's not insecure about his relationship with you. So wherever you are this morning, I'm praying that in the next few minutes, the truth of God's word would just penetrate through that part of you that maybe feels distant or disconnected or has that doubt because there's just something so beautiful about being in the assembly, being faithful to show up, even if your heart feels far away and that God is pleased with you being here. So um, that's not the message. That's just an extra, just a bonus. So if that was for you this morning, you can go if you want. You can hit up brunch early and and that'll be okay. If it, if it is, if you want to stay with us, we're going to actually have a full message now. So thank you for having me this morning. I'm really, really glad to get to bring a word. Normally I come every couple of months, every three months, and I was supposed to be here on Mother's Day, and I was unable to be here because um, over spring break, so excited to take my youngest. I have three children with my husband, Dave, and my youngest is 13, and really excited. We kind of made a family value to try to take individual trips with our kids. And so I took Dave out to Utah to ski. We we're so excited about this chance to be together, just mom and son, until in the third hour of our week-long ski trip, I tore my ACL. <laughs> and um, so that didn't quite turn out as expected. The best part of the trip for Des was that they had to upgrade us to first class because I couldn't bend my leg. And we happened to be on one of those first class um, cabins, if you've ever seen them from far away, where people, it's a full bed, like you can lay down. And he was like, mom, this is awesome. And then I thought I've ruined my teenager for coach for the rest of his life as well as myself. So I had surgery. And now at this point, like people don't know that there's anything wrong. I can kind of walk normal. But the reality is I'm still in, in PT and I still will be for a while. And I was with my physical therapist this week and I just wanted to share an experience I had there that I think is, is so perfect for our faith and for this teaching this morning. So I'm working and my physical therapist says the most important thing that you can do is work on micro movements. And what that meant was I was like stepping on and off a two inch block, just two inches. And, and so I'm, I'm practicing doing the right thing so that my knee will be strong for walking and eventually running. But I'm, I'm asking him, I'm like, Clark, well, if I'm only doing these two-inch motions, does that mean that I shouldn't go down the stairs right now? And he's like, no, you can go down the stairs. You're just falling down them. Like, your body's not actually doing what you need it to do. Now, when I go down the stairs, it won't, you won't be able to tell that I'm falling down the stairs. But the reality is it's not, it's, the micro-movement is not in place. The basics, the foundation 
foundational movements of having a knee joint that works with an ankle and a hip to be strong for walking and running and for life is what needs to be rebuilt. And how this applies to our faith is I believe that anytime we're in turbulent circumstances in our life, anytime that we feel distant, anytime we've just sort of been through something that, that feels like it, it decenters us, we must return to the micro movements of our faith, the basics of what we believe. And for me, just in the world where I feel like I can get tossed to and from so easily, and in a world that we're gonna talk about in a moment has a strong current that we're all standing or swimming in a culture together that has a very powerful current that's underneath the surface that we might not be aware of, in that, what we need to continually do is return to the micro movements of our faith, to not assume that we have those things in order, but that the discipline of our life in Christ is that we return to those movements. So I want to show you two places that I believe back that up, okay? Because we can kind of be in faith, and many of you maybe grew up in the church, or you're, even now you're here with your parents, and you just kind of like hear a bunch of stuff. So I want to make sure that you don't just hear a bunch of stuff and not know where it comes comes from, okay? So the first thing that's a micro movement of our faith is we actually are called to be like Christ, okay? So this is from 1 John 2, 6. It is not in my notes because I just added it this morning. So I'm going to have a little interactive church. Can we do interactive? Does it, does it make you feel uncomfortable? That's okay. I'm still going to ask it. Okay, so what we're going to do, this is the verse. It's whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. I think that's so important as a micro movement of our faith that I'm going to ask you guys, I'm going to say the first part, and I want you to say the must live as Jesus did. Feel like you can do that? Must live as Jesus did? Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. You need to hear your own voice say that. Because when you hear your own voice say that, you're making that first movement to say, okay, what is this really about in the storms and the winds and the currents of our culture, in the places right now in your life where you just might feel confused, something isn't working right, something's not working right in you, whatever that thing is, we go back to the basics. And the basics are this, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. We live a life where we're pursuing Christ-likeness. We're just we're trying to live as Jesus did. And here's the amazing thing. In Scripture, we have the Gospels. We have the good news that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We actually get to see Jesus live and see how he does life so that we might be able to imitate, to begin to live as Jesus did. So here's kind of our grounding thought for this morning, a point, how Jesus relates to us shows us how to relate to one another. How Jesus relates to us as followers shows us how we relate to one another. This is the connection, the basic, the micro-movement of our faith. First, we're called to live like he did. Second, we're called to relate like he did. And so the way we're going to explore that is by, first of all, understanding how Jesus related <laughs> Then we're going to look at a couple places he relates with one of his disciples and then that take that personal, take that home with us to ask the question, even this morning, how is the Spirit of God calling you into a deeper knowledge of who Jesus, how Jesus relates to you so that you might relate to others? Sound okay? 
All right, so let's review who Jesus is. You guys are like, are you serious? But here, I'm gonna, I wanna bring you to one phrase, one part of who Jesus is. This is a very familiar passage for many of us. It's in John chapter one, verse 12. If you wanna follow along, here we go. Yet to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, there's the basic of salvation, right? Everyone who receives him, who believes in his name, not what you do, not your doctrine, those who would receive and believe in Jesus, that's where our salvation begins. The rest of it is built from there. He gave the right, now that's adoption language, he gave the right to become children of God, meaning the adoption language says that you are no longer in your family of origin. Your new family of origin is a spiritual family in which there has been a legal adoption and you are now a child of God and that doesn't change. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, but of a husband's, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Okay, here we go. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, and if you're an underliner or a note taker, full of grace and truth. That's what I would write down in your notes or underline in your Bible. Full of grace and truth is what we're gonna talk about. If Jesus had a calling card, it would say Jesus, full of grace and truth. That would be the, the descriptors of who he is, how he relates, how he lives, in the world is with the set of values that is full of grace and truth. Now, because those are all words that we use in all kinds of different ways, I wanna give you those definitions, grace, truth, and full, okay? So here we go, grace. This is the, the, the best definition I can give you for this morning for grace. The boundaryless, unmerited, undeserved love of God. Grace is the boundary list. There's no boundaries in or out of it. Unmerited, nothing you can do to get it, nothing you can do to lose it. Undeserved love of God. Like that is a big, we know, that is a big part of who Jesus is. He is full of grace. His unmerited, undeserved love is abounding to the world. John 3:16. for God so what? Loved the world. Grace is about this love that is extended from our Father in heaven. Now let's talk about truth. If Jesus was full of truth, here's my, my best definition of what truth means in scripture. Truth is the reality of things as God sees them, not as I see them. This should be an ongoing challenge in your life. Truth is the reality of things as God sees them, not as I see them. For those of you who are mature in the faith, perhaps you can even think right now of a difficulty that you've been through, of a difficult relationship where you realize that God was up to something different than what you thought God was up to. And if you've been through that, then you know the kind of truth that I'm talking about. All the time, Jesus is saying to the people who are listening to him, hey, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus is defining reality to say truth is not whatever you decide it is. Truth is reality as God sees it, not as I see it. And finally, full. Full is not balanced. Full is abounding in both. So will you do one more thing with me this morning? Because it's warm in here, so I can keep you with me. Put your fingers together like this, your middle finger like that, yeah? Okay, most of us see grace and truth as a seesaw. Okay, so this elbow's grace. 
this elbow's truth, right? And we're like, oh no, like in my relationships, it's like this, right? I'm balancing grace and truth. And you don't have to say it for your spouse, but you probably wanna go ahead and say where you think they are, right? You're like, well, I kind of, I arc toward grace, I arc towards justice. Most of us think of love this way. But because it says in scripture that Jesus abounds in grace and truth, it actually looks this way, okay? So you build, a, you build a pyramid, and this is an arrow that's pointing toward truth, and this is an arrow that's pointing toward grace, and at the top of grace and truth is actually, the intersection is love. Love is not balanced grace and truth. Love is abounding in both grace and in truth. That is what love actually looks like. Now, why is that important for us to understand? We seem to have sort of slid into an idea in our culture that grace and truth in relationships looks like me being accepted, but not accepted just for my identity, not for my inherent dignity as a person, but that my truth needs to be your truth, whatever that means. And what that ends up looking like is we actually equate views, perspectives, opinions as on par with ultimate reality. Are you following me? This is the world that we're in. The culture that pulls us. We have to understand the culture that pulls us. Therefore, in order to be loved, I need to be accepted for my views, opinions, perspectives, behaviors, and only people who accept all of those things are actually loving me. Now, here's the problem. First of all, I'm not talking about your child. I'm not talking about your neighbor. I'm talking about you. All of us need to focus on how that's true for us particularly. Here's the thing. This is not how Jesus lived, and this is not how Jesus loved. Grace is unmerited and undeserved loved, not unconditional and unchallenged behavior. But because of the culture we're in, listen to this stat, okay? Walk with me through this stat, because this gives us such an interesting uh, picture of what's been happening in the world around us. There's a book called The Big Sort. It was written by Bill Bishop, and he explains it this way. In 1976, less than 25% of Americans lived in a county where a president won by a landslide. So follow me on that. In 1976, if you lived in your house, and that would mean the person to your right and to the person to your left, the person who lived in front of you, the person who lived behind you, only one of them would have voted like you. In 2016, 80% of Americans lived in counties of landslide victories, which means the person to the right, the person to the left, the person in front, the person behind, more than three of them voted the way you did. Now, why do we need to understand that? because we have a sorting that's going on where we've exchanged connection for transaction. Instead of feeling like I'm accepted and worthy of love, even when we have differing opinions, it's started to all mix together. We're having the same opinion, having the same belief, voting the same way, living the same way, making the same money, having the same kind of family. We equate that with relationship. And we equate that with love. We all do it because we're all in the same culture. Now that would all be well and good if it actually worked the way that people wanted it to work. But in reality, as this sorting has happened in our culture, we actually have more fear, more isolation, more depression, more anxiety, and more loneliness than ever before. Maybe the idea of the way Jesus loves 
that actually calls out love and truth together. Maybe Jesus' idea is the ultimate way to be in relationship. How do we know if we've fallen into this balance rather than intersection of love? Here's a couple of questions that you can answer to know if you're living in that lonely place. And just for, for mutual vulnerability, I've been in this place at least once of all of these in the last 18 months. You feel more fear than love, particularly with and about other people. Second, you view others with suspicion or as a threat to your own standing or security, and you can put any category you want on who those others are. For many of us, those are people in our family. You have no relationships, or very few, where someone can challenge your behavior and still offer you love and relationship. So many of us have experienced life as a transaction where we agree on views, opinions, behaviors, and therefore that's what love looks like. And if there isn't that, then the relationship also ceases to exist. For you have no relationships or very few where there is mutual submission. Mutual submission looks like compromise. It looks like truth telling. It looks like asking forgiveness and actually experiencing different behaviors because of it. And finally, you desire to feel more connected, understood, or accepted, but don't know how to get there. I believe this idea of Jesus's being full of grace and truth ushers in an altogether different way to approach relationships. First and foremost, your relationship with Jesus, and then your relationship with other pe people. So I want to play this out through a few different interactions that we see happen between Jesus and Peter. So we're just going to go into story time. I'm going to tell you a few Bible stories. You can just listen. You can write down the references if you want to read for yourself. But I want to just take a little, just a little moment, a little snapshot of how Jesus actually relates to us as human beings in a way that abounds in grace and truth so that we can connect that to our own lives as well as the lives of the people that we love. So we're gonna start in Luke chapter five. And in Luke chapter five, Jesus is just getting started. He's just calling his first disciples. So just a, a catch up to Jesus, right? Jesus like comes on the scene in public ministry and people want to hear from him. People are being healed by him, miracles are happening, and Jesus is teaching. And he's teaching about this idea of what reality really looks like. And what he's teaching is so different than what people were hearing from the religious leaders of the day that I don't know if half the people are curious, half the people are trying to condemn him, eventually half the people are trying to kill him. It's so radical what he's saying. So there's a lot of people around. And so Jesus is teaching, and because there's so many folks around, he looks out to some guys who are fishing in boats and says, hey, can I get in your boat, push out a little bit, and I'll sit here and teach. So Simon Peter is one of those guys. So Simon is in the boat with Jesus while he's teaching. I wonder what Jesus might have taught that day. When Je Jesus finished speaking, this is Luke 5, verse 4, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, <laughs> I love this. Remember, Simon's the professional fisherman. Jesus is a carpenter, right? He's like, hey, that's not the way it works. You know, he's like, we've already fished all night. They would have had their nets down. They would have pulled their nets up. They're probably mending their nets, drying their nets. He's like, we've already fished all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. 
When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. They had to signal their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now, y'all, has anybody here ever tried to catch a fish? Has anyone ever had the experience where you're like, I'm just catching so many fish, they're just jumping in the boat? The way I understand it is that's not how fishing works. And it certainly wasn't working that way for Peter that day, who had already spent the entire night trying to catch fish. But here's the curious part. All of this abundance, this miracle of fish, and in verse 8, listen to what happens. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And I just want to invite you into that moment. And why, why would Peter want to push away? Everyone who's over the age of 18, I would say, has probably had an experience where you realize who you really are. When you realize that you can't be all that you thought you could be. Maybe you've had an unintentional hurt of a friend. Maybe it was intentional. Maybe you've told a lie and got caught in a lie. Or even more so, told a lie, told a few more lies to try to cover it and then got caught. Everyone who's had an experience of seeing yourself in the mirror for being less than you thought you could be, for being less good than you'd love to believe, knows what it feels like to be exposed. And I think that this like unmerited, undeserved, boundaryless grace was just like going toward Peter and he's like, oh my gosh, I can't, I'm not good enough for this. And friends, our salvation always starts from this place of being like, surely it's too good to be true. And in some ways, it's so good it's true, right? But that experience of it's too good to be true, that's what Peter's experience. And Jesus is like full of truth. And he's like, hey, come follow me. Come follow me. Right after he abounds in grace, he abounds in truth. Come follow me. And, and Peter does. To his credit, he gets up off the bottom of the boat and follows Jesus. Example one of Jesus abounding in grace. Example two, remember, grace is unmerited and undeserved love, not unconditional and unchallenged behavior. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been teaching. People are starting to ask who Jesus is. They're asking around. They're like, is it Elijah? Is he a prophet? This is the same question, by the way, that people ask today. Is Jesus a great teacher? Is he a life philosopher? Is he a myth? What is Jesus? And so people are asking that question and Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter is the first to answer in verse 16. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven, abounding in grace toward Peter. I mean, can you imagine being Peter in that moment? You're like, yes. Jesus is always the answer, you know, and I was the first one to say it, you know. He's got this moment where not only does Jesus notice him, he calls Jesus out for who he is, and Jesus gives him a blessing into his life, like purpose and calling. It's just like a mountaintop experience. And not three verses later, it says that Jesus began to tell his disciples how he would suffer, how he would be killed at the hands of Jewish leaders and how he would raise, be raised again on the third day. This is in Matthew 16, verse 21, truly, three, four verses later. And in verse 22, Peter takes him aside, meaning Jesus, and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's a bad day as a disciple when Jesus tells you to get behind me, Satan. <laughs> that is not a good day. But here's the difference, guys. When we experience a rebuke like this, when we think of life with Christ, when we think of life with others, when we think about that kind of rebuke, which by the way, he did not condemn Peter. He condemned Peter's choice of reality, right? Peter was trying to name reality. And Jesus said, you do not name reality. You have in mind human concerns, not the concerns of God. But when we experience a get behind me moment, we think that means forever. And this lasted one moment. Jesus was like, get behind me, Peter. Now get beside me, Peter. Let's go. He rebukes, but he does not distance. Most of us have not experienced this kind of truth telling where we actually believe that we can know the truth of ourselves and still have relationship. That we can know the truth of others, that we can offer people love and grace and truth and that we can actually maintain a relationship. And because so many of us have experienced that, I believe that reverse engineers into our own spiritual life, where we think if we showed up honestly and fully with Jesus, if Jesus challenges our behavior, he also distances himself from us, and that is not what abounding in grace and truth looks like. That looks like balancing grace and truth, but our Jesus abounds in grace and truth to us. And so right after he says, get behind me, he's basically saying, get beside me, let's keep going. Jesus names reality as it really is. The third example of abounding in grace is a familiar story for many of us, although perhaps the most poignant verse in all of scripture. It is the last week, Jesus is having this last meal with his disciples, the Passover meal, where he's explaining what's gonna happen. He institutes communion for the first time. All that happens. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter's like, I'll follow you anywhere, I'll go anywhere. You know, he's, he's still kind of claiming that same allegiance. He's naming his reality. And Jesus is like, you know what, before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Peter's like, no, never, you know. And then the very next day, by the way, if you're not familiar with historical context, the whole thing was a sham. The whole way it went down with Jesus, the, the middle of the night arrest, the early morning like trial, all of it is just completely unjust, completely wrong. Everything that's happening about it, this is the human condition when power is threatened. And, and Peter actually follows at a distance. He's following and seeing what's happening to Jesus. And as he's following along, people begin to confront Peter. And someone asks him, hey, aren't you with him? And he's like, no, 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 that's not me. And then someone asks again, but your accent is Galilean. Aren't you one of his disciples? He says, no. And then we pick it up in Luke chapter 22. And he says this. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. He denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Man, I am not. And the final one, Peter says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And I believe the reason that we are given stories of Jesus' life, the way he relates and reacts with his people, is because we're invited into the story. And I want to remind you in this moment that what happened next for Peter is that Jesus died. 
And he didn't know for sure what was gonna happen after that. His last interaction with his friend, his leader, the person he'd been walking through side by side, the person who'd been discipling him, abounding in grace and truth, his last interaction was knowing that Jesus heard him deny him. And I don't know if you've had an experience like I talked about earlier where you just, you know the reality of who you are and, and how crushing it is to recognize that you yourself are not as good as you wish that you were. That you are limited and sinful and you make mistakes and you hurt people. And Peter in this moment has all of that and he doesn't have the rest of the story. He doesn't have the rest of the book of Luke to know what's gonna happen next. And so in our final moment with Jesus and Peter, we find Peter right back doing the same thing he was doing when he was first called by Jesus. It's John chapter 21. There's been some murmurings. Maybe we've seen Jesus. Maybe he's been resurrected. It's all kind of confusing. Think about how confusing that would be. There's also little, this is a sermon for another time, but there's little glimpses of maybe the resurrected body of Jesus slightly different. Some people recognized him. They kind of knew it was him, but they weren't sure it was him. That was all happening at this time. And Peter's back out with some disciples and they're fishing all night again. They go back to what they know. And in John chapter 21, that's happening. And they sort of look to the shore and they see someone, again, sort of that mysterious, they kind of knew it was Jesus. They didn't know if it was Jesus. And he calls out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish, the same miracle again. And I wonder for Peter, what happens next in the story is Peter jumps out of the boat, leaves his friends behind, and runs to Jesus. Now I want you to think about what it would have felt like to be Peter at that moment. The last interaction you had with the Lord, although some maybe confusing other ones in between, was that he looked at you while you denied him. And the next interaction you have is Jesus abounding in grace and truth once again. And I, as I prayed about it, I was like, what would be in my heart in that moment when I knew how deeply I had failed and yet this Jesus was calling me to him again? The thing I thought to myself was, he likes me. He likes me. And Peter goes to him. And this is the part of the story where we kind of wish maybe it was over. Like Jesus is like, wink, wink, like, you're all right, Peter. We're okay. But instead, in John chapter 21, Jesus actually reinstates Peter. He brings him back into relationship. He is full of truth while he is full of grace. And that's our Jesus. And, and, and are we full of grace and full of truth? Not without living in Christ, that's for sure. But if we wanna talk about what reality really looks like, the micro movements of our faith, what does it mean to actually live as he lived? then the pursuit of our faith is that we too would begin to understand that we are deeply flawed and fully loved by God, and that is the standing with which we approach all of our relationships. That the, the call of our faith is that we too would abound in grace and abound in truth. That we wouldn't be people that are on a seesaw, but we would be people pointed toward love, and that love comes when we abound fully in the unmerited, undeserved love of God. And that is our absolute attitude toward people around us. And when we abound fully in the reality as God sees it, not as we see it, that we are not afraid to live into the truth that is laid out for us in scripture, that we would wrestle through that together. 
What Jesus abounds in with Peter is the continued offer of grace within reality. Grace within reality looks like us continuing to miss the mark and Jesus continuing to show up. That's the gift that we have in Jesus. And that's what this is all about, you guys. The micro movements, the basics of our faith are that we would return to this truth again and again. So I wanted to offer you that practical tool, just those hands steepled like this. And I'm gonna give us a minute as we begin to close our service. I'm gonna pray for us and and give us a benediction as we go out from here. But before we do that, I'm gonna give us just a moment of quiet. And as I, I went through this exercise myself, and I asked the Spirit of God, God, in this arrow and in this relationship here that you've placed on my heart, am I abounding in grace and abounding in truth? And just, just last week, the Spirit convicted me, you, you're not abounding in grace. And that's what's important right now. And, and that answer might be different for you. And perhaps the person that needs to be at the top of that arrow is actually you and how you're experiencing Jesus, but maybe there's a relationship on your mind right now. And I want to invite you to let the Spirit of God inform you about what it looks like to abound in grace and truth in that relationship. So we'll take a few moments of silence. I want to invite you to just gather yourself for what God has for you today, and then we'll stand and pray together. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, it seems to me that some of us are just in a space to receive your love, to actually recognize that what you say is true, that you keep showing up for us, that even in our failures, our disappointments, the ways that we think that you must not wanna be near you continue to show up for us. And we can know that you, you really like us. For some of us, God, we may be learning that you are abounding in grace to us, that you define reality for us, and that our job over all else is to love one another from this countercultural, miraculous kind of love and that we spend our lives just figuring that out together. Lord, for those of us in the room who perhaps have a relationship right now that is on our heart, would we believe that, Spirit, you are working in that relationship, that you desire to bring restoration, reconciliation, healing, and love? Would we trust you in that place? So, Lord, we thank you, and we love you, and we lift you up this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.